Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brenda, for those prayers. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all today. Welcome to community in person and online. We continue in our freedom series. Um, Freedom. So Erica and I are in this stage of empty nesting, and yesterday we had some freedom. We didn't have anything scheduled for the afternoon, and we decided to go to the beach. And we had no agenda. We just walked around at the beach, had lunch there, and we enjoyed some lovely freedom. That's not exactly the type of freedom we're talking about here as we dig into Galatians, but it is all about freedom. How do we walk our faith in freedom? We started this journey a couple of weeks ago and looking at the center of that freedom being Jesus Christ, the center of our gospel, Jesus Christ, the source of Paul's authority, Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Brenda walked us through some of the conflict that was in the church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and the need that the Jewish Christians were putting on the Gentile Christians to behave Jewish in order to be fully accepted by God, and Paul pushing back on that, that they didn't need those customs to be fully accepted by God. And we see Jesus erasing these lines between people. And we see Paul doing the same in the church in Galatia. So today, freedom to change. See, Paul was being accused of making it too easy for Gentile Christians to follow Jesus. The Jewish Christians thought they had to have other things added on to be fully accepted because that's how they were raised in following God. So Paul's accused of, of not um, of being too easy. He's accused of not having the true gospel. And so he speaks into this issue. He steps into the conflict because it matters to Paul. This is not an easy thing, but he knows it's important. So let's unpack these verses. Let's pray first. God, we thank you that you are here. We thank you for Paul's journey of freedom. And we thank you that this scripture is something that we can wrestle with and apply to our lives today through your help, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Galatians 1. We are in three weeks in Galatians, and we're still in chapter 1. <laughs> um, we're taking this you know, slowly because there's so much meaty stuff in this book. Verse 13, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, But I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
and they praise God because of me. All right, so Paul is being accused of sort of being a, a junior apostle, sort of a lower member down the tier of not really knowing the gospel itself. They think he's twisted the message to make it easier for these Gentile Christians. And Paul wants to let them to know that he learned the gospel from Christ himself, from Jesus. And what does Paul do after this encounter on the Damascus Road? We hear about that encounter in Acts, which is kind of the, the early church's document that shows how the church was forming. Acts 9 says this about Saul, who was then later renamed Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, basically any who were following Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And he neared Damascus on his journey. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul's life was changed on the Damascus road. He wanted to be a faithful follower of God. That's how he was living his life. He would study. He was a Pharisee. He had a good education. He was faithful in how he was following God. He encounters Jesus, and everything changes. This verse 18, then after three years... I've never heard a sermon on these three years, and when I came across it afresh, I was like, what happened in those three years for Paul? We don't hear anything about it. He went to Arabia. So he was in Damascus, and he went all the way down to Arabia for three years. There's a couple of things in Arabia. There's Mount Sinai. There's Petra. Uh, we don't know what had happened, but this passage, Paul talks about his zeal, and somebody else in the Old Testament is talked about in terms of their zeal, and it was Elijah. So Elijah had this big victory over the priest of Baal, and he runs for his life because he knows that his life is in danger. He runs to Mount Sinai. He pleads with God. He's worried, and he, he's actually not sure he wants to keep on living. He goes to Mount Sinai. Why Mount Sinai? That's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He goes to Mount Sinai, and God shows up to Elijah in the still, small voice. Maybe that's what Paul had on his mind, going back to the source of the Torah, his teachings that he'd based his life on, going back to this place where he might rediscover who God is after realizing he was getting it wrong. Jesus really was God. Perhaps he went and was sorrowful, maybe angry, maybe regretted persecuting the very followers of Jesus that he was now in the process of becoming. That encounter on the Damascus Road shattered and recreated everything about Paul, transforming his theology, radically changing his life, reshaping how he did ministry. So three years, he was in Arabia. Then he goes back up to Damascus, goes to Jerusalem, 
meets with some of the apostles there for a couple of weeks, goes to Caesarea, and from Caesarea goes to Tarsus, where he is from, for 10 years. The Tarsus years are also silent years. We don't know what Paul was doing, but you could imagine this three-year and 10-year block of time. He was reworking everything about who he was, who God was, and how he was to live his life. Things can take time when we're challenged and we're changing our views of who God was. So this was changing, but Paul's ministry goal before and after Damascus was very similar. His ministry goal was to be a faithful follower of God and to help people discover God's resurrection. It was just now, after Damascus, that resurrection was Jesus Christ. He knew who God was now in Jesus. But the way he did his ministry dramatically changes. Before Damascus Road, this is how Paul did ministry with coercive power. We saw in just that one simple Acts text, he went to the synagogues wanting letters for those who were followers of Jesus to put them in prison. We know that he also used verbal and physical violence. There were martyrs in the name of Jesus because Paul was going after them. We know his credentials were important to him. He would minister in force. It was about what he could do for God. And his idea of God's kingdom was Israel. This is how Paul did ministry. This is how he was a faithful follower of God. This is how he thought it was to be done. But after Damascus, Paul's ministry completely changes. There's a great book here called Power and Weakness. And it's all about how Paul's ministry changes pre and post Damascus and looking at Um, the bulk of Paul's writings. There's other great books. If you want to dig deeper into Galatians, this is by N.T. Wright, by Eugene Peterson, and by Tim Keller, who passed away this week. So more than willing, uh, welcome to come up and take photos of those if you would like to, to dig deeper. So how did Paul's ministry change after Damascus? Well, one, instead of course of power, weakness... God's power will be made perfect in weakness, he says. Instead of a faithfulness to the law, there was a faithfulness to Jesus. Instead of self-righteousness, Paul calls himself the chief sinner, the number one sinner. That's how he is ministering. He recognizes he's been saved by grace. And now he can emphasize what God has done for us. And sees God's kingdom, God's mission is for the whole world. Paul's view of God was transformed. Before Damascus, he was concerned with power and credentials and his strength. And being a faithful follower of the law. After Damascus, we see Paul talking about grace and mercy. That salvation is a gift, not earned, but a gift of God. And Paul would discover this new way of ministry was actually allowing God's power to show forth instead of his own. And he wanted to see communities and churches based around not people's own power, but who God was. That they would embody the character of Christ, this Jesus who put himself on the cross, this 
cruciform posture of giving yourself for others, of kneeling down and washing feet, of loving other people instead of controlling them and coercing them and manipulating them. This was Paul's journey, these years away, this reconstruction after deconstruction. I came across this quote this week, the process of change is always a good story, but it is never a neat formula. Paul tells his story, and I thought it would be helpful for us to hear stories in our community of people in our own church who have gone through changes in their thinking about God. We'll hear from five people total today, um, but let's listen to the first two now. Hello everyone, my name is Richard and I've been coming to Community Church for about a year and a half. At around the age of 11 I became an official member of church and it was a very proud moment in my life. I, I genuinely felt at the time that there was something to be very proud of, to the point that I felt quite self-righteous if I reflect back on that. I reflected how conformity crept in at times, um, yeah, helping out religiously at church, attending a fellowship Bible study. All those things which are good, but if not used in the right way, they just lead you down a very narrow-minded path of doing and, and not including everybody in, in your circle. Acts talks about how believers were of one heart and one mind. And I often reflect back at, at a young age how true that was for me. But at one point, at some point in time, I let go of that to the point that I didn't include others in church life. Fellowship, worship, and Bible study are great tools. They're all given by God for us to include everybody. It's a tall order that Jesus says to us to love everybody. And everyone's a big word. And that's a very difficult commandment, actually, to love everybody. Pastor Brenda touched on this last week, and uh, it really resonated with me when she talked about how it's so easy to include those in our lives who are similar, who are from similar demographics, um, but we're all challenged to do so much more, um, not just check our own boxes. And coming to CCHK, it's helped me to appreciate uh, the idea that to be a Christian is to be more inclusive and not exclusive. Thank you. Reflecting on Paul's conversion story and looking at my own story, whilst not as dramatic, over the past two years, there have been two significant things that have affected my perception or relationship with God. The first was my mom's sudden passing away. And secondly, it was seeing how the anxieties that I had from childhood were starting to affect my children and my family and how they related to the world and ultimately to God. My relationship with God, whilst re relational, was very transactional. I felt that I needed to tick a lot of boxes or do a lot of things to ensure that God was with me. There were a few things that helped me change uh, my perception and view of God. The one was I started seeing a Christian counselor 
The second was the teaching at Community Church and how the pastors were exploring the nature of God and His attitude and relationship towards us. And thirdly, a few months ago, I attended a Thrive service where a book was mentioned with the title, Try Softer, rather than what we or I was trying to do was trying harder. And through this journey, it allowed me the freedom to relate to God in a way that was personal and unique to me, rather than trying to be someone else and ticking boxes to gain God's approval. And whilst I haven't necessarily reached the destination, and sometimes I do tend to go back and try and do certain things to, to get God's approval, I do feel that I'm on a journey and, and less anxious and more free to relate to God in a way that's personal to me. All right, thank you, uh, Denver and Richard, for sharing of your stories. It, sometimes it, it takes a lot of courage to share your own story, especially when you are in the midst of it. And yet, when I hear stories from those in the community, I know that God can use those for our own journeys to see I'm not alone, it's not just me, that um, God is, in fact, in this and in this community. So thank you. Uh, Richard and Denver, from sharing from your hearts. Uh, this quote here is uh, Eugene Peterson's reflection on Galatians, specifically on this passage, and he says this, We are, each of us, set apart. We are pre-loved by God. By his grace means that God does not look around to see who will best suit his purposes and then single them out because he's pretty sure that they will do a good job. It means that God has capacity so large in love and purpose that he calls us in order to do something for us, to give us something, grace. You think religion is a matter of knowing things and doing things. It is not. It is a matter of letting God do something for you, letting him love you, letting him save you, letting him bless you, letting him command you. This is what Paul was learning on the Damascus Road. This was what Paul was learning while he was in Arabia. He was wrapping his mind around this. This being pre-loved by God. This might have been part of the process that Paul went through. And it's a process that many of us have been through in our own journeys with Christ. We might have this original view of God, and Paul did, right? It came from the Torah. It came from his tradition. It came from how he understood God, and he thought he was being a faithful follower of God. Then what happens is there might be a catalyst or a crisis in our life. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's an unanswered prayer. Maybe it's a challenging teaching. Maybe it's a deep disappointment. For Paul, it was Damascus Road. That was the crisis and realizing in fact, Jesus was God. That turned everything upside down for him. See, Paul encountered Christ, and he had to deconstruct all of these things that he had thought about God and how he was called before he could reconstruct, and that takes time to do that. It took Paul at least three years he needed to meet with God, to question, to confess, to rethink his view and how to live in light of that. How do I integrate this new truth into my life? How does it shape me? 
So let's listen to three more stories from Eugene, Dora, and Carol. Hi, so I was um, asked to share about um, the way I used to believe and how that's changed over time uh, and what changed, uh, what, made, what helped to change. Uh, the best way for me to describe it was basically I used to believe in a gospel of sin management uh, where um, although I was taught about grace for my sins, I felt like I had to repay them. And, uh, and be perfect from this point onwards, onwards. And the way in which it worked was that I was reminded about the sacrifice of Jesus for my struggles, um, but also that um, if there was a temptation or there was a sin, there would be a way out, um, always. God would always provide a way out. And if you didn't take that way out, well, you just weren't honoring God and it wasn't, um, I mean, you just weren't good enough or, or perfect enough. So I've always strove stride for perfection. Uh, and uh, I think what began to shake my world in one ways was to see how imperfect um, the people who purport um, or carry this view was really. And let me draw a questioning um, before I found an, a new community um, where I can I realized people were not seeking this concept of perfection. It was not about excellence. It was not about managing my sins and reducing it, um, so to speak. But in that freedom, being able to find that I'm a better person, just things are easier actually this way. I didn't have to feel frustrated and hold on to anything and feel like I was white knuckling um, through my life so to speak. Um, in this sense, I think I found the gospel of radical grace uh, because I can trust that God will work in people in different ways and especially when you're not consistently being reminded that you're not good enough and that you need to do better, uh, otherwise God will be disappointed at you. Um, so radical grace is this makes sense to me when Paul talks about how in his weakness God's strength is made perfect and so I can see that as well in my life. Um, now. So, and hopefully, as we continue to this journey alongside others, uh, we will continue to radically love one another and continue to encourage one another towards that journey. During my teenage days, my mom was diagnosed of first stage cancer with high chance of recovery. Church, Christian friends, and our whole family all prayed for healing. Sadly, my mom passed away within one year not understanding why that happened despite of much praying, I walked away from God. Five years after, I was diagnosed of anxiety and depressive disorder. A close friend at that time told me, you need God. So I visited church and this marked my journey back to God. During this time, I started attending church and fellowship, praying and reading the Bible again. I deeply experienced God's presence and love in my heart. God gave me not just sleep, but also rest when I had insomnia. And I found peace and joy in Him when I had anxiety and depression. Then I experienced God's miraculous healing within three months. The psychiatrist was so surprised that he asked me how I could recover so quickly. I replied, I went to church. I realized that not everyone is healed in this way. While it is tempting to jump to the conclusion, the wrong conclusions as I did in the beginning, that God does not heal or that God only heals other people, I now believe the truth is that God continues to heal us today. Sometimes it is the healing of a particular sickness, 
or condition at other times. Healing may take place in other areas of our and others' lives, like relationships and brokenness in our hearts, which may not be apparent. Continuing on with the story, another five years passed, I finally had the courage to ask God why about my mom's passing. And God answered me, it was the best for your mom. By this, God healed my broken heart and I was restored. Today, God is still working on my heart and I look forward to the day when I would be completely healed from grief. About unanswered prayers. These happen most to me when the answer is wait, as I quickly conclude that it is not answered or no, as I just ignore it. God created us and knows us inside out. His provision is always far beyond my imagination. Thank you. I believed God was only happy with me as a Christian if I was struggling or suffering, especially if it was for him. I believed the more I suffered for him, the better a Christian I was, and I believed this meant God would love me more. I also believed as a Christian I wasn't allowed to talk about my struggles with others, um, as this could be construed as complaining or gossiping. I didn't think I was allowed to have negative emotions towards what God was allowing into my life. I believed I always had to find the bright side of my situation, and if I didn't, I was being ungrateful towards God. So essentially, I believed that the more I suffered for God, the more he would love me, and also that any suffering I experienced, I had to deal with silently and alone. Shedding these beliefs was a process over a number of years, but I think the main turning point was when I realized that part of my motivation for doing all these things was actually me trying to manipulate God into loving me more, so that he would give me the things that I wanted in return in life. I also began a journey of learning about how much God cares about my heart, my heart motivations, and what's inside infinitely more than anything I could do for him on the outside. Um, now I know God's love for me does not fluctuate depending on whether I'm serving him or not. His love for me doesn't fluctuate depending on what I do or don't do, period. I no longer feel guilt or shame for sharing the truth about something in my life in the appropriate space. And I can be completely honest with God about my feelings, um, as messy as they might be. And I know that he can handle it because he's not a fragile God. When there's a struggle in my life, I no longer interpret it as a mark of God's pleasure or displeasure. I now interpret struggles as normal to our experience as humans and that God is fiercely committed to me and will walk with me and love me through whatever the situation is. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Dora. Thank you, Eugene. Yeah. You know, we want to be a safe place for people to open up about their stories here. And we heard five stories, and there's as many stories as there are people here. See, Paul didn't just go through this on his own. He had community. He went to community, and then he took what God was doing in his life out to the world. That deconstruction could be setting down some view that's no longer true to you about who God is. It might be setting down lies that you're believing about God or lies you're believing about yourself. Maybe ways you have been manipulated or led astray maybe even by good-meaning people. 
Deconstruction can come at a cost. It can come with this idea that my community can't handle this. I've got to find a place that can. And that can be hard. And know that we want to be that place for you to feel safe, to question, to challenge, to let God come and minister to you. At community, one of our values is is Christ-centered. And then the other is gospel-focused. That is what the center is. And we want to help you journey and discover more of that and to be a place where you can feel the freedom to go through that. This quote I found this week, deconstruction is not a faith death sentence. If we have a safe, nurturing environment in which to ask questions, have deep discussions, and be welcomed no matter what, rather than being a slippery slope toward the death of faith, deconstruction is actually part of the cycle of spiritual renewal. Nothing is wasted in the free life of faith. God is even working in those moments. And so we welcome Everybody here, we're inclusive. We want people to discover Jesus. And in a moment, Pastor Brent is going to come up and welcome everybody who wants Jesus to the table to be ministered to by him. And that's our hope, that Jesus Christ ministers to each one of us, no matter where we might be on the journey. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible love. We thank you that you draw near. We thank you that you so lovingly walk with us if we're deconstructing what we've been taught or told or believed, God, towards a more Christ-like view of who you are. We thank you for your incredible love, Jesus, in your name. Amen.